This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning a new series this month titled Stranger Than Fiction. A few months ago, I gave you another series, Swan Songs, about true crime cases that inspired songs. This time, I'll share cases of crimes that caught the attention of Hollywood and ended up inspiring feature films. First up, a beautiful young mother who discovers her husband is cheating on her files for divorce. Soon afterward, she goes missing. Discovering what happened to Hella Crafts would take a small army of detectives, forensic scientists, serologists, forensic anthropologists, a police diving team, and other investigators to unravel this bizarre crime that would inspire an Academy Award-winning film. This is Chapter 1 of Stranger Than Fiction, Richard Crafts and Fargo. In the fall of 1986, Hella Crafts had had enough. She'd been married to her husband Richard for 12 years, and they'd had three children together, two sons and a daughter, now ages 10, 7, and 5. She'd long suspected that her husband had been unfaithful, but as he was an airline pilot and often gone for long periods of time, she could never quite prove it. But now she had proof and decided it was time to file for divorce. She never expected her life to turn out this way when she'd met Richard Crafts in 1969. If Hella was being honest, she really never planned to marry Richard. He was almost 10 years her senior, and her friends and family weren't quite sure what her attraction to him was. Hella Nilsson was born in Denmark in 1947. She grew up to be a lovely young woman, blonde-haired and blue-eyed with a friendly disposition and a sweet nature. She had a gift for languages and learned French and English in addition to Danish and would also acquire a working knowledge of German, Norwegian, and Swedish. After attending college in England, Hella took a job as an au pair in France. It was always a goal of Hella's to travel the world, and she got her chance to make that dream a reality when she began working for Capital Airways as a flight attendant. When she heard that Pan Am Airways was looking to hire more flight attendants, she applied. Her prior experience and language skills helped her to secure a spot as one of the eight women hired out of 200 applicants. She was sent to Miami, Florida, which served as the hub for Pan Am. Many flight attendants and airline pilots stayed in a motel near the airport while in between flights. They would often socialize together, and the mostly all-female flight attendants and all-male airline pilots typical of that time would sometimes enter into romantic relationships with one another. In 1969, 22-year-old Hella met Richard Crafts, a 31-year-old pilot who flew for Eastern Airlines, one of the largest airlines in the U.S. at that time. They began dating casually, even though Hella discovered that Richard was actually engaged to someone else. However, she didn't consider her relationship with Richard serious, so she wasn't too concerned. They dated on and off for several years. Hella's friends and co-workers didn't understand what she saw in Richard Crafts. He couldn't really be considered handsome. He tended to look somewhat disheveled with a mop of dark hair that never seemed to be combed. His personality also wasn't very pleasant. He wasn't warm or friendly towards Hella's friends, and he and Hella often argued, sometimes in public. Richard could be downright aggressive and had a quick temper. 
But for some reason, Hella kept dating him anyway, even though she could have had her pick of several men who were nicer to her and better looking. But Crafts had some sort of charm, it seems. He didn't have trouble getting dates and was seen out with several flight attendants over the years. Perhaps it was his tales of past accomplishments that gave him the confidence to approach any woman he happened to fancy. Or maybe it was the fact that as an Eastern Airlines pilot, he made a very good salary and could impress his dates with his bank balance, if not his personality. Richard Crafts was born in New York City in 1937. His father, John, was a former World War I pilot, who later ran a successful business. Richard was the youngest of three children and the only son. He grew up in the affluent community of Darien, Connecticut. You may remember Darien as the hometown of Alex Kelly, the fugitive rapist from episode 151. Like Kelly, Crafts also attended Darien High School, but graduated 30 years earlier. Crafts was an average student in high school and didn't last long in college, dropping out to join the Marines in 1956. He became a helicopter pilot and was later stationed in Asia. While there, he flew planes for Air America, an airline covertly owned and operated by the CIA from 1950 to 1976. Later, Crafts would regale his dates with stories of his time flying missions for the CIA. But what his actual activities were with the organization were never clear. After leaving the service, Crafts returned to the U.S. and worked as a pilot for several firms before being hired by Eastern Airlines in 1968. By the 1970s, he was making close to a six-figure salary with the airline and would exceed it later on, earning over $120,000 a year by 1985. He and Hella continued to date each other off and on, and then Hella discovered she was pregnant with his child in 1975. They married that same year, and Hella gave birth to their first child, a boy. A year later, the couple purchased a spacious ranch-style home in Newtown, Connecticut. Hella devoted herself to being a mother. Later, the Crafts added a second son and then a daughter to their family. Hella was very active in her children's lives, participating in their school PTA meetings, attending their soccer games, practices, and other activities. Richard was often away from home, flying for Eastern for extended periods. Once the children became school-aged, Hella returned to work as an airline attendant. The Crafts hired a live-in au pair. 19-year-old Don Marie Thomas resided in the Crafts' home and took care of their three children while their parents were working. Richard Crafts did have some odd quirks. For one, he was an avid gun collector to the extreme. He spent a lot of money on hundreds of weapons, including several shotguns, dozens of handguns, semi-automatic weapons, and even hand grenades. He also possessed thousands of rounds of ammunition at any given time. He also handled all the couple's finances. Although he made a very good salary, he spent tens of thousands of dollars on items like landscaping equipment, including a large backhoe, tools that often sat unused and cluttered up the property in front of their home. Richard could be stingy with money. He made Hella pay for the household expenses out of her own paycheck. She had to budget to make sure her salary would cover the children's necessities, even while her husband spent frivolously. One of the biggest issues Hella had with her husband was that he would sometimes just disappear for days without a word to her about where he was going. Hella never knew if Richard was working, traveling to a gun show to purchase more weapons, or somewhere else. He would simply return days later, never explaining his whereabouts. For these reasons, among others, the couple's relationship grew strained over the years. Perhaps when Hella returned to work, she began to question her husband's unnecessary expenditures 
or confronted him about his absences. Whatever was happening behind closed doors, Hella didn't confide in anyone. Her friends, however, did observe telltale bruises on her face. They naturally suspected that she was being physically abused by her husband. In 1985, after 10 years of marriage, Hella began to suspect that her husband was having an affair. She found a long-distance phone number on their phone bill that she did not recognize. She learned that her husband was making numerous calls to a woman in New Jersey. She still didn't want to jump to conclusions, but after several months of tracking his phone calls, she finally decided to talk to a divorce attorney. In the summer of 1986, Hella met with an attorney named Diane Anderson. She told her that she suspected her husband of having an affair. The attorney advised her to hire a private investigator to confirm if this was true. She suggested P.I. Keith Mayo, a former police officer who now ran his own investigation firm. Mayo followed Richard Crafts for a couple of weeks and then met with his client. He told Hella he was sorry to report that her suspicions were correct and showed her several photographs he'd taken of her husband with another woman. They were holding hands, kissing, and being very affectionate with one another. Rather than Hella becoming angry, Mayo later reported that she sobbed uncontrollably for several minutes perhaps finally accepting the fact that her marriage was truly over. Hella told friends that she was filing for divorce and then wrote a letter to her mother in Denmark to break the news. She told her that she didn't trust her husband anymore and that she'd already told him that she wanted a divorce. Hella then completed the necessary paperwork to end her 11-year marriage. In the fall of 1986, as she talked about her upcoming divorce proceedings with her friend Lena Johansson, she said something that would haunt Lena forever. If anything happens to me, Hella said, don't assume it was an accident. Hella Crafts had confided in several friends and family members that she'd informed her husband Richard she was filing for divorce. She'd found out that he'd been carrying on an affair for years. Hella was done putting up with her husband's disappearing for days on end and spending their finances in any way he chose, especially now that she knew that his time and money were being spent on another woman. Just weeks after Hella filed for divorce in the fall of 1986, she returned to her home in Newtown, Connecticut after completing a scheduled flight assignment to Germany. It was the evening of November 18th when Hella's friend and co-worker dropped her off at her home at 5 Newfield Lane. The weather was bad, and a snowstorm was blowing through the area. As Hella walked up to her door with her small suitcase by her side, she turned and waved goodbye. That was the last time anyone would ever see Hella Crafts. At 6 a.m. the following morning, the Crafts nanny Dawn was surprised to be awoken by Richard Crafts. She had worked her night job at a fast food restaurant and had only returned to the house at a little before 2 a.m., Crafts told Don that the storm had knocked out the power and he needed her to help to get the children ready. He was going to drive them all to his sister's home in Westport, about a half an hour away. He told her with no power they had no heat and it would be too cold to remain in the home. The children were woken up and quickly dressed. Richard drove Don and the three children to Westport in the family car. On the way, Don asked him where Hella was. He told her that Hella was already on her way to Westport and that they would meet her there. But when they arrived, Hella wasn't there. Richard dropped them off and quickly left. Hella never arrived. Richard didn't return until after 7 p.m. that evening to pick up Don and the kids. When Don asked him where his wife was, 
Richard just answered, I don't know. The next day, November 20th, Richard had a different answer when Don inquired about Hella. He now told her that Hella had flown to Denmark to be with her sick mother. Later, when Don was straightening up the master bedroom, she noticed a dark stain on the carpet. Soon after that, Don noticed that pieces of the carpet had been cut out, including the area where she had seen the stain. When she asked Richard about it, he told her that he'd spilled kerosene on the carpet when he lit a lamp during the power outage. He'd cut the soiled portions out and planned to replace it with a new carpet, he explained. But when Hella didn't show up for her next scheduled assignment with the airline, concerns were raised. It was not like Hella to ever miss an assignment and especially without calling to let anyone know. Nor had any of her friends heard from her since November 18th. One of her friends called the Crafts home to check on Hella, and Richard told her that she was in Denmark. But Richard Kraft's explanation for his wife's disappearance continued to change over the next days and weeks. He told others that his wife was visiting friends in the Canary Islands. But others reported that when they'd inquired, Kraft simply said he didn't know where his wife was. When Hella's friends began comparing notes, they knew that something wasn't right. They decided to call her lawyer, Diane Anderson. Anderson had not heard from her client, but thought it best to try and track her down quickly, lest she be in some sort of trouble. Anderson called Kevin Mayo, the private investigator. Knowing what he knew about Richard Kraft's affair and Hella's pending divorce, Mayo feared the worst. He immediately went to the Newtown Police Department to report Hella missing. However, Richard Kraft was well known to the Newtown Police as he had served as an auxiliary police officer with their department some years earlier. Now he was employed as a part-time police officer for nearby Southbury PD. They thought the PI was overreacting, and Mayo couldn't convince them to begin an investigation into Richard Kraft's wife's disappearance. But Mayo didn't let it go and decided to look into the matter himself. He spoke with Don, the nanny, who told him about the stain and the missing carpet. He thought if he could try and locate this evidence, the police would have to seriously look into Hella's disappearance. He learned which dump the garbage from Newtown was deposited at and enlisted helpers to search through the mounds of refuse for the sections of blue carpet that had been cut out of Hella's master bedroom after her disappearance. After several days, they found a piece of carpet in the dump that seemed to match. It also had stains on it that appeared to be blood. It would be the first of many pieces of evidence taken to the Connecticut State Police Lab. It was meticulously analyzed by renowned forensic scientist Dr. Henry Lee. Dr. Lee would be called as an expert witness in many high-profile cases, including the O.J. Simpson trial and the JonBenet Ramsey murder investigation. But Mayo would be disappointed when it was determined that none of the stains found on the carpet were human blood. However, the story of the missing mother in the investigation would be picked up by the media. Public pressure for answers would result in the Connecticut State Police taking on the investigation. Richard Kraft was finally interviewed. Investigators from the Major Crimes Unit called him in for questioning on December 2nd. Almost three weeks had passed since his wife was last seen, but Crafts seemed unconcerned and unruffled. He gave only one-word answers to questions regarding whether he knew his wife had filed for divorce and if a private investigator had documented an affair he'd been conducting with a woman in New Jersey. He answered no to both. When asked about why pieces of the carpet in his home had been cut out and the carpet later completely replaced, he said that he was putting in new carpet and it was easier to remove it in pieces. Finally, when they asked why he'd given different stories about where his wife had gone, 
He said that he didn't want to tell people his wife had left and admit he didn't know where she'd gone, so he made up stories. Crafts agreed to write up a statement about the last contact he had with his wife and any information that might be helpful. He handed the police a one-page statement that didn't provide many details at all. He was then free to go. As the investigation continued, police discovered some strange credit card purchases made by Crafts before and after Hella's disappearance. New bed sheets and a comforter were purchased in the days after Hella was last seen. But even more interesting was the purchase of a large-capacity Westinghouse freezer purchased on November 17th, the day before Hella returned home. It was picked up at the appliance store on November 19th. And there was one more strange charge on Kraft's credit card. It was a $900 charge for the rental of a large wood chipper. State police took the evidence they had gathered so far to secure a search warrant for Richard Kraft's home and property. They cited the disappearance of Hella Crafts sometime on or after November 19, 1986, the number of different stories Crafts had told to explain his wife's absence, the stain resembling blood Don Thomas had seen in the master bedroom, the carpet later being cut out and removed, and the statements by Hella's friends and family that she would not have left her three young children and her job in such an abrupt way of her own free will, were all listed as reasons Hella may have met with foul play. As for motivation... They explained how Hella had proof that her husband was having a long-term affair with another woman, and when she found out, she had filed for divorce. Hella was in a position to be awarded half of the marital assets, including their home, savings, and Kraft's pension from Eastern Air. They believed that Hella Kraft's may have been a victim of murder in her own home, and stated that they, quote, had probable cause to believe that evidence of murder will be found within and upon the premises of 5 Newfield Lane, unquote. The search warrant was granted, and investigators entered the home on the day after Christmas to conduct the search. Crafts had taken his children to Florida to celebrate the holiday. Dr. Henry Lee was on hand to oversee the collection of evidence. When they entered the home, they were surprised at its appearance. The home was nearly empty, and furniture was placed haphazardly around the rooms. Dirty clothes were piled in every room. Stacks of dishes lay unwashed in the sink. Mattresses lay on the floor in the living room with boxes of toys placed next to them along with other children's items. The carpets had been pulled up and were missing. It looked more like a college frat house than the neat and tidy home Hella had always kept. Note, this makes me dislike this guy even more. It appears he was the kind of husband who let his wife do all the housework and never lifted a finger to wash a dish or run a vacuum cleaner. She had been gone for just a little over a month and he had his kids living in filth and squalor. Gross. But I digress. The search yielded a few pieces of carpet that had been cut out of the master bedroom. A smear of what would later be determined to be dried blood was found on the side of the mattress in the master bedroom. The Westinghouse freezer was not found in the home. Also found and analyzed by Dr. Lee at the state lab were five tiny stains on the mattress that were determined to be type O blood, a match for Hella's blood type. There were also towels found in the bathroom that had been washed but Dr. Lee conducted a luminol test on them, and it revealed that the towels had been saturated with blood before they were washed. Police brought Crafts back in and subjected him to a polygraph examination. He answered no to the questions, did you kill your wife? Do you have any knowledge of who killed your wife? Etc. He passed the polygraph.
Police suspected Richard Crafts of having murdered his wife and disposing of her body. But they still had only circumstantial evidence and no body to definitively say that Hella Crafts was dead. Then on January 30th, two and a half months since Hella was last seen, they got a break in the case. They interviewed a man named Joseph Hine, who was employed by the town of Southbury. He recalled the evening before and the early morning of November 19th clearly, because that was the night the big storm had rolled through, knocking out power. He had been driving a snowplow to clear the roads. Most of the roads were deserted because of the deep snow, but around 3.30 a.m., he noticed a rental truck that he described as a U-Haul-type truck with a roll-up door in the back. As he passed it, he noticed that the roll-up door was closed and a large wood chipper was attached to the back of the truck. It was parked near a bridge on River Road, near a portion of the river called Lake Zoar. About two hours later, as he made his way back down the same road, Hines saw the truck still parked near the river. This time he noticed that the truck roll-up door was open and observed a lone individual wearing an orange hooded parka who appeared to be tossing wood into the chipper. The wood was being tossed out of the chipper and into the river. The man waved for Hine to pass around him, as the snowplow driver had slowed down to observe. Hine continued on his way, but he thought how odd it was for someone to be using a wood chipper so early in the morning, right after a big snowstorm. Investigators asked Hine to point out the area where he saw the truck with the wood chipper parked. He did, and there they found a pile of wood chips along the bank of the river. Mixed in with the wood were pieces of green plastic material. As the detectives looked closer, they also found some partially shredded paper and then a few intact envelopes. One envelope had a cut-out cellophane window in the front, and the folded correspondence was still inside. The address on it clearly read, Ms. Hella Crafts, 5 Newfield Lane, Newtown, Connecticut. They could not believe their luck. The area was cordoned off and a search perimeter mapped out. For days, forensic search teams meticulously went over each piece of debris located along the banks of the river. More envelopes addressed to Hella Crafts were found along the shore, but most items found were minuscule in size. It would later be determined that the items had been cut and crushed in an industrial-sized wood chipper, rendering each item into thousands of pieces. Every item found was cataloged and transported to the state crime lab where it was examined by Dr. Henry Lee and a team of other experts in blood, hair, and fiber analysis. Among the items recovered from the banks of Lake Zoar included 2,660 blonde human hairs, 3 ounces of human tissue, 69 slivers of human bone, a piece of human skull, a portion of a finger, a fingernail covered in pink nail polish, a portion of a toenail, and two teeth. If you can imagine a riverbank covered in leaves, rocks, dirt, melting snow, and slush, it would be a gargantuan task to find the tiny pieces of evidence that were uncovered. One very important piece of evidence was discovered, you could say, by accident. One of the detectives searching the muddy riverbank in freezing cold weather was just about to give up for the day when his foot slipped in the mud. He put his hand down into the dirt to stop his slide. When he returned to the top of the bank and wiped off his hand, he discovered a portion of a tooth stuck to his hand with a silver crown still attached. I said, you could say by accident, because in cases like this, I'm inclined to believe it was more than a coincidence that this piece of evidence that would become the linchpin to this case was found accidentally. 
It's almost like someone or something otherworldly was directing searchers in the right direction to make sure this crime was solved. Okay, that's my woo-woo moment for this episode. But the search wasn't yet over. The state police dive team searched the frigid water of Lake Zoar for a mile in each direction of the site. They could only stay in the water for short periods of time due to the extreme cold, but continued at it for two weeks. They found a chainsaw embedded in the muddy river bottom near the shore. Its serial number had been filed off. The chainsaw was taken to the state lab, and stuck in the teeth of the blade was found human tissue, blonde hair, and blue fibers that matched the carpet inside the craft's home. State lab technicians were also able to recover the serial number off the chainsaw. Hella Crafts had given a box of personal papers to private investigator Kevin Mayo when she'd retained him to gather proof of her husband's extramarital affair. In that box was a receipt for a chainsaw purchased by Richard Crafts in January of 1981. The serial number on the receipt matched the chainsaw found in the lake. Another coincidence? You be the judge. Police now had a theory of what happened to Hella Crafts and believed her husband was responsible for her demise. On January 11, 1987, they arrived at Crafts' residence on Newfield Lane at 9 p.m. to arrest him on suspicion of murder. His house was surrounded by officers, and then they called him on the phone. When he answered, Crafts was ordered to come outside and surrender to the authorities. He answered, I'm tired. I'll take care of it in the morning. Then he hung up the phone. Excuse me? They called him again, and this time when they insisted he surrender immediately, Crafts reacted angrily, yelling, Don't call me back, before slamming down the phone. At this point, I'm thinking, battering ram and drag that sucker out by his unkempt hair. But no. Detectives continued to call their murder suspect on the phone and tried to get him to surrender. For hours, y'all. What? I can't even. Finally, over three hours later, Crafts finally agreed to, quote, come out in a few minutes, unquote. All the time, his children were asleep inside the house. Around 1 a.m., Richard Crafts was taken into custody. He was booked into the Bridgeport Jail on one count of murder and held on a $750,000 bond. Richard Kraft's trial for the murder of his wife, Hella Crafts, began in May of 1988. Based on the police investigation, the prosecution's theory of the case went like this. Early in the morning of November 19th, while their children were sleeping and their nanny was away from the house, Crafts bludgeoned his wife with a large flashlight. She was in the master bedroom, wearing a sleeping gown with a pocket. She had picked up the mail that had been sitting in a pile delivered when she was gone on her last flight. She had placed the envelopes into her pocket. She was struck at least twice, and her bleeding head swiped the side of the mattress as she fell, leaving a blood stain. She continued to bleed from the head wound onto the carpet. She was either killed by the blows to her head or strangled to death while she lay incapacitated on the floor. Ironically, the man who collected hundreds of firearms used none of them in the commission of his crime. He wrapped her body in the sheets and comforter and carried her body down to the basement where he placed it in the large deep freezer. He cleaned up the room and went to wake up the nanny. He needed to get her and the children out of the house to have time to dispose of the body. After returning from Westport, he waited until nightfall and removed Hella's now-frozen body from the freezer. Her body was taken to another location, 
Investigators believed he'd gone to a secluded property he owned in Newtown and cut the body into pieces. They were then placed into green plastic garbage bags. Late in the evening, he pulled the rented wood chipper behind the U-Haul truck out to River Road. Parking the wood chipper so its contents would be dumped into the river, Crafts ran the garbage bags containing the body parts through the chipper. Because the remains were frozen solid, there would have been little blood spatter. When he had finished, Crafts drove away and parked at the side of River Road, where he was seen by the snowplow driver. Crafts had brought some wood along, which he then ran through the chipper to clean off any residual evidence. He then tossed the chainsaw used to cut up the body into the river. The freezer was not found in the home, and it's suspected that Crafts disposed of it elsewhere. It has never been found. Crafts could have gotten away with his gruesome crime, if not for a few mistakes. First, he wasn't expecting a witness to come along and observe him with the wood chipper parked on the side of the road. He most likely believed the storm would keep everyone inside their homes, but he didn't take into account a lone snowplow driver who couldn't help but remember the odd scene. Secondly, not all of the debris from the wood chipper fell into the lake. There was enough evidence found on the banks of the river to alert investigators that they'd found the dump site. Finally, the industrial-sized wood chipper was designed to cut up and crush large objects, but the thin envelopes with Hella's name and address written on them, which Crafts most certainly didn't know were in her pocket, sailed right through the machine's blades, virtually untouched. Yes, there is no such thing as the perfect crime. Remember that, folks. The key piece of evidence from the trial that sealed Richard Kraft's fate was the tooth found so serendipitously in the lake. It was only a partial tooth, but a portion of a metal crown was still attached. Dr. Constantine Carazolis, a forensic odontologist, took hundreds of x-rays of the tooth at all angles. He then compared them with a set of x-rays taken by Hella Kraft's dentist between 1980 and 1986. He found that the tooth was a perfect match to Hella's lower left bicuspid from her dental records. He testified in court that he was, quote, medically absolutely certain that the tooth belonged to Hella Crafts. But just to be sure the jury had enough evidence that Hella Crafts' body had been found, the prosecutor also called Dr. Lowell Levine to testify. Dr. Levine was a forensic scientist from New York State and an expert in his field. He had helped identify the remains of Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele in 1985. He agreed with Dr. Carazolas that the tooth belonged to Hella Crafts. Dr. Henry Lee also testified at trial about the collection and analysis of thousands of pieces of evidence. He determined that the 65 pieces of bone found at Lake Zoar had been, quote, cut with a heavy type cutting edge that produced with a crushing cutting force consistent with the wood chipper. In addition, Dr. Lee testified that the bone, human tissue, and fibers found all mixed together were cut by the same machine. After 53 days, 100 witnesses, and 650 exhibits presented, the murder trial concluded on June 23, 1988. The jury was out for two weeks, with 11 voting to convict and just one lone juror holding out to acquit. The man could not be persuaded to change his vote, and finally, he angrily walked out of deliberations and refused to return. On July 15th, a mistrial was forced to be declared. But prosecutors knew that they had a good case and quickly retried Crafts. 
The trial was moved to Norwalk, Connecticut this time due to the amount of publicity the case had received. The media had picked up the story, dubbing it the Woodchipper Murder, and it got statewide and then nationwide attention. The trial presented the same witnesses and testimony as the first and lasted two months. It concluded on November 20, 1989, almost exactly three years since Hella's murder. The jury deliberated only eight hours before they unanimously found Richard Crafts guilty. At his sentencing in January of 1990, Crafts still maintained his innocence. He addressed the judge, saying he had been wrongly portrayed as a cold-blooded killer. He said, A lot has been said about my apparent lack of emotion. He has ice water in his veins. I have feelings like everyone else, he whined, sounding more sorry that his reputation had been dragged through the mud than the fact that his wife was brutally slain and his children were now motherless. Karen Rogers, one of Kraft's sisters, was awarded custody of his three children. She spoke at her brother's sentencing, asking not for leniency, but urging the judge to give her brother the maximum sentence possible. I am concerned that Mr. Crafts has not publicly nor privately demonstrated any remorse for the murder of his wife, she said. She was angry at her brother for the lifetime of grief and pain he'd subjected his children to after making the decision to kill their mother. Richard Crafts was sentenced to 99 years in state prison. He appealed his sentence and in 1993 lost his appeal. He still denied killing his wife and continued to maintain that she had disappeared. Just last year, in November of 2019, Richard Crafts was released from prison. He had been incarcerated at the Willard Cybulski Correctional Institution, a minimum security prison. When he was released, he'd served 32 years of his 99-year sentence. He was able to shave off two-thirds of his sentence due to an old sentencing law in effect when he was originally convicted. Statutory good time could be earned for good behavior and participation in prison job detail. It allowed for large amounts of time to be taken off a sentence, barring any major infractions in the inmate's prison record. The law has since changed, and under new guidelines, Crafts would not have been eligible for any time off of his sentence today. Strangely, he was still considered eligible for the shorter sentence, even though he did have some disciplinary infractions in his prison record. In 1997 and 1999, he was found with contraband items in his cell. Because they were not illegal drugs, he was only restricted to 15 days in his cell for just one of these infractions, as they were only considered medium-level offenses. Crafts was also given three years' credit for the time he was arrested until the time his second trial was concluded. Finally, after all that time was wiped off his sentence, he was also released seven months early in order to be transferred to a supervised halfway house rather than being immediately released into society. Classified as a low-risk offender, the now 82-year-old was moved into the Isaiah House in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Just two months later, he was moved into a homeless shelter for veterans, also located in Bridgeport. While there, he was supervised by a parole officer. At last report, he was expected to be fully released from the custody of the Department of Corrections in June of 2020. After their mother's death, the community of Newtown took up a collection for Hella's three children raising over $200,000 to provide for their immediate needs and future education. After legal custody was awarded to their aunt, Richard Kraft's pension from Eastern Airlines was dispersed to his children. 
1996, the movie Fargo was released. Written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, the black comedy starring William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, and Frances McDormand would earn several Academy Award nominations and win two. Frances McDormand won an Oscar for Best Actress in a Leading Role, and the Cohen Brothers won for Best Writing of a Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. The film opens with these words displayed on the screen. This is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. While this is a very intriguing opening disclaimer and one of my all-time favorites, alas, the Coen brothers would later admit that this was just a bit of creative license. The movie was not actually a true story. However, one of the most memorable and talked-about scenes in the film is based on an actual crime, the murder of Hella Crafts. The Coens heard about the sensational story called the Woodchipper Murder in the media. The details of how Richard Crafts tried to obliterate the evidence of his grisly crime would stay with them and become part of their screenplay for the film called Fargo. The movie is set in a small town located outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1987. Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, is a weak little man who has had no success in life and has been reduced to working for his wealthy father-in-law's auto dealership. He has gotten himself in debt to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars and has been embezzling money from the dealership to try and get himself out of this jam. His father-in-law is on the verge of discovering his theft, and Jerry is desperate to keep this from happening. He comes up with a half-baked scheme to have his wife, Jean, kidnapped for ransom. He believes his wealthy father-in-law will pay a great deal of money to get his daughter back safe. Jerry enlists two men to kidnap his wife and promises them a portion of the ransom once it's paid. But what's supposed to be a staged, nonviolent crime goes haywire from the beginning because wife Jean doesn't go quietly. The kidnappers finally get her tied up and into the trunk of their car to transport her to a cabin in the woods to await the ransom payment. On the way, they are stopped by police for a moving violation and have to shoot their way out of the situation. Jean is finally taken to the cabin, but she continues to scream and fight so much that the kidnappers end up murdering her too. Jerry's plan, now on the skids, finds him desperate and at odds with the kidnapper played by Steve Buscemi, who it turns out is more dangerous than Jerry bargained on. The kidnappers come up with the grisly plan to get rid of Jean's body by using a wood chipper, the detail the Cohen brothers borrowed from the wood chipper murder case. Jerry and his hired kidnappers meet with an equal level of failure, as did the real-life Richard Crafts. None of the other details of the movie reflect the real-life crime of the murder of Hella Crafts. Like they say, the truth is sometimes much stranger than fiction. Richard Kraft's method of pulling off the perfect crime was so bizarre and unlikely that it almost seems like fiction. The Coen brothers realized that it was so unreal, it could only be told in Hollywood. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our research, administrative, and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. I've just released a new episode of Let's Talk About True Crime. In that episode, my special guest is Aurora from the YouTube channel Murder Murder News. We discuss true crime-breaking news, including the Golden State Killer Joseph D'Angelo guilty plea and the latest updates in the Lori Vallow-Chad Daybell case. 
We also touch on the latest news in the Bill Cosby, Danny Masterson, and Madeline McCann cases and more. Listen to Let's Talk About True Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. You can also get episodes on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. I provided links in the show notes. Until next time, wear a mask, wash your hands, and be good to one another.